If you were raised in a church like I was growing up, and you and I would have similar thoughts about becoming a Christian, you and I might both think about something along the lines of becoming a Christian is simple. You see, growing up, I learned that when I sin, I'm bad. When I don't sin, I'm good. When I have Jesus, he gets rid of my sin. For me, it was kind of like a math equation because that's the way I thought of things. Me plus sin equals bad. Me minus sin equals good. Me plus Jesus is no sin. You see, at the age of nine, that was when I really needed to know, and I was sold. I was sold and I got baptized. But for some of you, it wasn't that simple. For some of you, you were hurt by a church member. Your professor pointed out things in scripture that made you kind of debate your faith. Or God never seemed to care about your sorrows. Whatever your story is, becoming a Christian may not have been nearly as simple for you as it might have been for me. In ancient Rome, it wasn't very simple for pagans or Jews either. Pagans had to conform to monotheism rather than polytheism. Everyone in the ancient world except for Jews were what we call pagan, and that is that they believed in many different man-made gods. Their gods were the state gods of Rome, the local municipal gods, the family gods, the gods of forests, mountains, streams, and meadows, and many more which included lifestyle choices such as money, sex, and music. You see, pagans believed these gods ensured that their crops would grow, their livestock would reproduce, they brought rain and protection against storms, they warded off disease and restored the sick to health, and they maintained social stability, and they provided military victories for the troops. Pagans believed their gods would give a proper life in exchange for proper worship. This mostly involved saying the right things and performing the appropriate sacrifices. If the gods were not worshipped in these days, meaning they would be ignored, they would bring dis disastrous retribution, drought, epidemic, economic collapse, military defeat, and so on and so forth. But one of the key differences between the pagan gods and our god is that the pagan gods were only active in the present life. Almost no one in Rome, in the Roman world, practiced religion in order to escape eternal punishment or receive an eternal reward. That is, until the Christians came along. See, Christians brought about a whole new idea of heaven and hell. Unlike pagans, Christians claimed that they were only, there was only one God and he should be worshipped, not by sacrifice, but by proper belief. Christians spread the news that Jesus would make you right if you believed, rather than if you make yourself right after you believe. And pagans marveled at the idea that instead of receiving punishment or reward in this present life, punishment and reward would come in your life at the end. And it was either eternal glory with the love of God or fire and torture from God. You see, religion has never been promoted as such an idea before. Christians preached a need for salvation, and God was much more attractive, more gracious, and more personal theism. All of this we preached in addition to the testimonies of those who Jesus fed, healed, and saved. The Jesus movement was so attractive to pagans that they were willing to give up everything to follow a Savior who offered them even more. But as hard as it was for pagans to convert to Christianity, it was even more difficult for Jews to convert. 
For many Jews, becoming a Christian was far from easy. Many Jews had to deal with the confusion of leaving their Jewish faith for an all-new Christian faith. Ultimately, the Christian faith was much more joyful, loving, and free, but for the Jewish leaders who berated, exiled, and murdered people who converted Christian faith, it was difficult for other believers. Paul, who was formerly known as Saul, was one of those Jewish leaders. Saul was known for being a vicious and terrifying leader who set out to extinguish Jesus' followers. In fact, in Acts 9, we see when, 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 when Saul is blind and turned to Paul, Ananias was terrified to go see Saul and convert him. But even though Jews were converting to Christianity, they still struggled with the influence of their old faith or their prior faith. They were struggling with the dietary laws, the circumcision, and the celebration of holy days. However, the issue was that Jesus wanted all of his followers. He didn't want someone to be half Jewish and half Christian. He wanted his followers to be fully invested in the one who would not convert their faith, but rather complete their faith. Many of the influences on the Jews and non-Jews I mentioned are influences that Paul is writing his letter to the Colossians about. The church in Colossae had many new believers who were torn between fully investing themselves in God and remaining close to their prior beliefs. This is an issue many new and mature believers had to deal with and have to deal with today. The Colossian church's issues was that they had false teachers who were trying to persuade the new Christians into following their pagan faith or their old Jewish faith in addition to following their faith in Jesus. But Paul is swift to tell them that their faith does not lie in the pagan gods or in the law of Moses. Their faith lies in Jesus alone. Let's start by reading in the beginning of Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, I want you to know how much I've agonized for you and for the church of Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. Remember, Paul did not start this church. Epiphras did. Verse 2, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by the strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, if you believe Jesus, you have everything you need. Verse 4. I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. Paul is alluding to the false teachings here by calling them well-crafted arguments. It astounds me of how he is even writing to strangers. Paul shares that he feels spiritually present with them. Through faith, he is stating his connection to them. Verse 6. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down in him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth and you, as you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Paul is continually referencing their need to trust in Jesus because there are people who want them to share their faith with Jesus and the law or the gods. He goes on to warn them about these things in verse 8. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world, but rather from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God and in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. 
Paul is warning against the teachers who are trying to diminish the authority and power of Jesus. It's almost like they are trying to convince the church that Jesus is not enough on his own. But this is simply not true. But I want you to know that false teachings are still alive today. We must always be on guard of who we are allowing to speak spiritual truths into our lives because false teachers are alive in all different church sizes and locations. There is a prominent megachurch minister who has major influence across the globe. In a sermon, he was preaching a lie about Jesus. His lie was quickly caught, and the church leaders across America were quick to point out his lie. I am grateful for those who spoke to him about his lie, but what about those who were not on guard? Perhaps because of the emotional connection and quality of the church music that it presents, some might still be believing his lie today. I will refrain from naming the preacher so that you might be willing to investigate for yourself and examine who you are allowing yourself to speak into your life, but I will quote him for you. According to the preacher, he was talking about Jesus when he said, performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God about Jesus, not as God. If he performs miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. But if he did them as a man, I am responsible to pursue them. I am responsible to pursue his lifestyle. This quote, along with various others, communicates the disbelief in the divinity of Jesus Christ, basically saying that Jesus is not all you need. You need Jesus and something else. This is a direct contradiction with what Paul, John, and even Jesus himself says. Unfortunately, false teachings like this are more prevalent in the church today than we, and we ought to be on guard for them. While it appears that his church worships Jesus as God in their songs and their understanding of incarnate Christ is that he was less than divine while he walked this earth. When this statement was made, Christian leaders across the country were quick to jump on this preacher. His response was that he miscommunicated his point, which happens since we are all human. But that does not change the damage this statement can do to Christians and to anyone else. Regardless of what he meant on the statement, it was false and shows how careful we must be when we study and how we communicate it. I tell you all of this to remind you that false teachings are still alive today. That is one of the reasons why biblical education is imperative to a Christian's walk. Join a Bible fellowship class, a small group, or a daily devotional on the YouVersion Bible app to help you grow in your education. One thing I learned in seminary that was really, really difficult for me to understand was the difference between preaching and teaching. It was not until just the other day that I read a tweet by Rich Villados that was, actually, that was accurately communicating this. He said, What people need in preaching ministry is not just good exegesis and theology. He goes on, People are looking for a word from someone who has been with God and has journeyed inward to the face of demons and struggles that afflict everyone and offer a word of hope and liberation out of that. Of course, we need good exegesis and theology in our lives, but preaching is more than that. Teaching requires knowledge and a lesson to be learned. Preaching requires a relation and experience that produces hope and encouragement and truth that will guide the listener out of the afflictions in their lives. I tell you this not to point out one is more important than the other, but rather to bring to light that listening to preaching is not enough and that listening to teaching is not enough. The two methods both bring glory to God, but they provide something different for the listener. As I preach to you today, I want to share my struggles with you. I want to share with you that I am often tempted to believe that Jesus plus something gives me what I need. 
Perhaps Jesus in correct politics will save this country. Perhaps Jesus in following all the rules will get me to heaven. Those are things that I struggle with thinking at times. And the Colossians were struggling with influences of the other gods, like Hermes, the god of money, or Aphrodite, the god of sexual love and beauty, or Apollo, the god of sun, logic, and reason. Like I explained earlier, their pagan beliefs were that, in order to have a good life on earth, they had to worship these gods. If you don't worship the gods enough, that's why you've had hardship in your life. Look at what Paul says, starting in verse 11. Verse 11, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. No, no, no. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. Verse 12, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to a new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ up from the dead. And let me tell you, this is where it gets good. You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us, and he took it all away by nailing it to the cross. Verse 15. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Before you came to the gods, you had to clean yourself up. But with Jesus, he is all you need. We don't need to clean ourselves up when we come to Jesus. Then come to Jesus and he will be the one who cleans you up. We come to Jesus and it is with his mercy and his love and his grace that cleanses us. And I love the word canceled here. I imagine it with all my sins being brought before God, a complete list of all my sinful nature, actions, thoughts, and words, and then I imagine God looking at it and saying, this is not who you are. This is not who I know you to be. You are more than these things. You are my child, and I will forever love you. In my mind, it makes no sense. It is baffling that the one who knows the worst things about me loves me the most. And this is true for you today, too. Because of this, Paul says, God has disarmed the gods. Those pagan gods that want to claim they have power, have no power. They spew lies and confusion, but our wonderful Savior spreads love and forgiveness. You don't need Jesus and Hermes, or Jesus and Apollo, or Jesus and Aphrodite. All you need in your life is Jesus. And this is the same message I give you today. You don't need Jesus and politics. You don't need Jesus and money. You don't need Jesus and anything else. All you need in this life is Jesus. As humans, it seems like we are never satisfied. In order to feel complete, accomplished, or happy, we always seem to feel like we need something else. We tell ourselves if we had a bigger house, or a better job, or another relationship, or a certain political party in office, and the list goes on and on. I am one who has struggled with these temptations. It causes me stress and jealousy, and I have convinced myself, if only I were to have this or that, I will be content. However, one day as I was reading through the Gospel account of John, I came to this realization. If Jesus is all I have, you are all I ever need. Jesus, if you are all I have, you are all I'll ever need. 
I wore this truth, I wrote this truth on notes around my house. I got into the habit of writing it on my hand every morning to remind myself I am going to want other things. I am going to convince myself I need Jesus plus something else. But it is all lies. The truth is, if Jesus is all I have, Jesus is all I'll ever need. I can't wait to read to you what comes next because Paul extinguishes all of the next false teachings, which might even be more impactful than the last one. You see, in addition to being tempted by pagan influences, the Colossians were being tempted by Jewish influences. They were tempted to believe in order to have Jesus, they needed to have the law too. They needed to follow Jesus and the law. But Paul, he couldn't disagree more. Look at this, verse 16. It says, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon celebrations or Sabbaths. See, these were Jewish practices that people were trying to influence on the church by shaming them. Verse 17. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. In other words, the law cannot stand in comparison to Jesus. Verse 18. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels or saying that they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes. Verse 20, you have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of the world. The law can't do that. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Verse 22, Such rules are mere human teachings about these things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise, but because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. In other words, strong devotion does not equal a strong relationship with God. These rules and laws the Jewish influencers were trying to bestow on the church do them no good. Sure, these things make you seem devoted and disciplined, but God sees us for more than our actions. God sees us in our hearts. God sees the hearts we have for him. Our hearts have no connection to the law or other devotions or disciplines. Our hearts have connection to Jesus. It is only through Jesus that we get to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. To me, it is like Paul is saying throughout the chapter that the law holds no power. The law will not save you. The law will not bring you hope. The law will not satisfy you because the law was incomplete. The law needed the way, the truth, and the life. The law needs Jesus. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. You see, our rules will never save us. Living a clean life will make you look good, but it won't save you. The only way to conquer our evil desires and and be saved is to follow Jesus. To have hearts for Jesus and being completely reliant on him. Here's the things you don't want to rely on. Do not rely on your Sunday morning attendance. Do not rely on your generosity. And do not rely on your kindness. It is only through Jesus that we are in a right relationship with God. We cannot be right with God on our own. We cannot be like God on our own. We are only right with God when we have Jesus. Because in Jesus, 
We are healed. We have a future. We are right with God. We have purpose. We are not afraid. We are confident. We are content. We have a hope. And most importantly, we are free. It is not by my own might that I have these things. It is by his power. It is by his love. It is by his grace. It is by his hope. It is by his control. Because of who Jesus is, I know that Jesus is enough. Jesus doesn't need a supplement. He doesn't need a sidekick. He doesn't need support. In your life or mine, Jesus will always be enough. We will be tempted to believe that we need Jesus plus something else. We will be tempted to think Jesus is not enough. But just like Paul said in verses 9 and 10, for in Christ lives the fullness of God in the human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Walk through life every day united with Jesus. If you haven't noticed over the past few months, the United States of America has been anything but united. On July 4th weekend, we have numerous disputes involving political parties, race, flag etiquette, and face masks. These, topic, these topics have created division like, we have, like I have never seen before in America. And if we are honest, if we opened up and gave everyone an opportunity in the church to speak, we wouldn't have a very united church either. But this week, I was texting with some friends about race and caring for oppressed people in our world. After just a few texts, me and my friends began to disagree. One friend I agreed with more than the other. We shared life experiences and came to an agreement that we both understood and believed in. However, my other friend did not share the same belief. He quickly told us his final viewpoint and would not text back. You see, my friend and I disagreed at first, but through sharing our experiences with each other and listening to one another, we became united in a belief. My other friend stated his viewpoint and quickly moved on. Because of our disagreement, I will forever feel a bit divided from this friend. It will affect our friendship. Will I still be friends with him and love him like a brother? Of course I will. But in our future conversations, I can't help but feel a small disconnect between us. Our union with Jesus can be very similar to this. The slightest division from Jesus creates a disconnect between us. If we are not completely united with Jesus, we will never be satisfied with Jesus. It is only in our complete unity with Jesus that we are completely satisfied with who he is. But you see, Jesus was never meant to divide us. Jesus has always been there to unite us with God and, and, and the church. Jesus is enough. We don't need to add to who he is. We don't need to subtract from what he has said. We can truly unite with Jesus. We find all we need in him. I'm not afraid to admit to you that there are certain things that Jesus says that are tough for me to understand and accept. However, I feel, whenever I feel this way, I remember to humble myself, and, have a very, and I, I have a very limited understanding of, of different things, and God has a complete understanding. When I feel divided from Jesus, I go to God in prayer. I ask for his wisdom, for him to remind me to be humble. Oftentimes, I will speak with Christians I respect or pray and pray for God to reveal to me why I feel this way. Being united with Jesus is not always simple. It takes time, effort, humility to stop trusting in your own reasoning, your own belief, and begin to trust in the man who came to die for you and be raised again. But I can tell you this, being united with Jesus will forever be fundamental to everything in our lives. When we stand united with Jesus, Jesus, in every conversation, in every action, in every conviction, Jesus alone will change your life. A rule or a law is good devotion. 
but Jesus is the only one who will bring salvation. If you don't know the life-changing power of Jesus, I want to invite you to change your life today. I want to invite you to set aside whatever you are relying on in addition to Jesus. Grasp his love and accept his free gift of eternal life. If you'd like to make that decision today, please contact our church office or send me a message. I would love to speak to you. But if you're a Christian and you're having trouble with the temptation, I want to challenge you to go read the entire gospel account of John. As you do that, I want you to pray these words every single day. Jesus, if you are all I have, you are all I'll ever need. And I know it's going to be weird to do this, but right now while you're watching this with me, I want you to say these words with me real fast. Three, two, one. Jesus, if you are all I have, you are all I'll ever need. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the power that he brings, not just in the world, but in our lives. The personal relationship of who he is. Lord, in the pagan world, in the Jewish world, they had different gods and different things that they were believing in, whether it was the law or whether it was other gods, and it was confusing and they didn't know what to believe. But Lord, you are clear with us what to believe. You sent your son to die for us. And as Paul said in his letter, Jesus is enough. And Lord, I pray that that message would be in everybody's hearts this week and for the rest of their lives. I pray that it would be in my heart as well. Lord, as we go through life, Help us to always remember that Jesus is enough. Nothing needs to be added to him. Nothing needs to be subtracted from him. He is enough the way he is today, in the future, and forever. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the amazing things you've done for us. We praise you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.